Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Oftentimes in life we hear people associate or compare life to that of a race. So in corporate settings you might hear, I'm in the rat race. Or if you're going through something trying, your friend might tell you, hang in there, you're in the the home stretch. Sprint towards the finish line, it'll be over. Or slow down, slow down. Life is not not a sprint, but a marathon. And so these racing images and comparisons really resonate with most people. And these are modern examples of this, but really this is something that people have been doing for a long time, of comparing life to a race. And that's the image that Paul gives us this morning. Because the first thing that we see is the pursuit of righteousness. The pursuit of righteousness. And that word pursuit has racing overtones. Not race as in skin, but race as in track. And he says, what shall we say then in verse 30? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And so he opens our passage with what shall we say then? And this is, this is a common theme, especially in the book of Romans. And it's either one of two things. Paul is either making a transition to something else, or he's really answering the question of what is the point of everything that we've talked about to this point. And so last week, Matt talked about verses 1 through 29, and this is Paul's way of saying, what does that mean? What do we do with this information? And so in order to answer that, he gives us a racing scene And he first introduces us to the Gentile racer, saying that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And so this hits us as strange because Paul is setting up a little bit of a mirror image between Gentile and Israelite. He says that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, but they did obtain righteousness. And that's funny to us. It doesn't really make sense, at least at face level, because we understand that if we want something, we pursue it, we get it, we we need milk from the store, we go there, we give the money. It's very predictable. We went after the milk, we expected to come back with the milk. But it would be strange if somebody brought you a gallon of milk just out of the blue. And we kind of ask, man, why did they obtain righteousness if they didn't pursue it? Because it's obviously a heavy topic. And it's because what Paul said in Romans 9.16 is actually true. Because their pursuit doesn't matter. In 9.16 he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so Paul unpacked that last week. But if that's true, that's really just the natural outflow of what he says there. If it's not up to human will at all, it's up to God's will who has mercy then it makes sense why the Gentiles would have righteousness when they didn't pursue it. Because even if they pursued it, it wouldn't have mattered anyways. Why? Because it wasn't up to them. It was never up to the human will, 
but to the will of God who is giving this righteousness. And notice that it says in verse 30 that it is a righteousness that is by faith. A righteousness that is by faith. And so obviously, Paul cannot be talking about moral righteousness, doing good things, because he would have obviously known some Gentiles who did some good things, help little old ladies across the street, feed the poor, clothe the naked, all of these things. Paul speaks of this throughout all of his letters as he knows some Gentiles that pursue morality. So he's not talking about a moral righteousness, but this is what theologians call a forensic righteousness. It is a right standing before God. Because if you're doing moral good works, moral righteousness, that's a righteousness by what? By works. You're doing the good works. But this says a righteousness that is by what? Faith. That's the difference. That's the track that the Gentiles are starting off on. So he's introducing the Gentile racer, and on the track that they're racing, you can see the word faith. It is a righteousness that is by faith, a right standing before God. And of course, this is the most important, because if you want to do good, you have to first what? Be good. If you are not good, if you are not in a right standing, you are not going to pursue righteousness. And we often get that mixed up, don't we? We want to do the good things. We want to see people help us. We want to see others help them. And so we start with the works. But really, as Jerry used to say, that's the fruit that's not the root. If you want the moral righteousness to follow, you must have a righteousness that is by faith. And so Paul introduces us to the Gentile racer who is racing by faith, who obtained righteousness but did not pursue it. And then he turns his attention to the Israelites in verse 31. And you would expect a clean mirror image to compare and contrast, but he doesn't quite do that, does he? In verse 31 he says, But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So that's interesting because Paul talks about the Gentiles and says they didn't pursue righteousness, but they did obtain righteousness. You would expect him to say the Israelites did pursue righteousness, but they did not obtain righteousness. But he doesn't do that. He puts the emphasis on a different word. He says the Israelites pursued a law. A law. And I don't think this is by mistake. Paul is incredibly intelligent. And I think he's trying to emphasize something here. It's a law that would lead to righteousness. But they did not succeed in reaching that law. Again, emphasizing law instead of righteousness, because that's what you would expect. And I think this shows the shift of the Israelite mind. That perhaps they were pursuing the righteousness of God, the right standing before God. And then it just got all out of whack that they started pursuing the law. And if you could keep this law, it would lead to righteousness. Remember Romans 3, you can't keep the law, so you're not going to end up in the righteousness camp. But they instead started focusing on the means to the goal instead of the goal itself, which is a righteousness that is by faith, a right standing before God. And so we see their goal is all mixed-matched here. And I think that's why Paul emphasizes the law for the Israelite racer. So the Israelite racer is on the side of the track that says works or law. And that is how they are running this race in the picture that we have today. And that's drastically different than a, a righteousness that is by faith. It's as if it's the difference between somebody admiring a sunset 
and you admiring yourself admiring a sunset. Those aren't the same things. The goal is to admire the sunset. The goal is a right standing before God. The goal is not to admire yourself admiring a sunset or admiring yourself and you keeping the law because that is their boast. And so the Israelites did not even reach the goal. They, they mixed up the goal. They went towards the law only. And it says they did not even succeed in reaching that messed up goal. And the obvious question is why? And Paul asks it for us in verse 32. He says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So last week, when Matt was before us, he talked about why is anybody saved at all? Why is anybody saved? And we see a very heavy section within the book of Romans. Roman, Romans 9 is famous or infamous of how you look at it. And it answers the question is how in the world is anybody saved? And so he told us, rightly so, that we often ask the wrong question. When God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and we say, that's not fair. How could he hate Esau? And we get that wrong, don't we? It's how could he love Jacob? Because neither one of them are good. Neither are good. We ask the wrong question all the time. And so 1 through 29 answers the question, why is anybody saved? But it doesn't mean that the question of why did he hate Esau isn't an important question. But we want to get the order right. Why did he love Jacob at all? Why is anybody saved at all? And today he answers the question of why is anybody lost? Is it because of non-election? No. It's because of their works. The works lead them there. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, so this is what the Bible teaches. Election alone accounts for the saved, but non-election does not account for the lost. It is God's action alone that saves a man. So here's the question, why is anybody lost at all? Is it because they are not elected? No. What accounts for the loss is their rejection of the gospel. We are responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we are not responsible for our acceptance of it. And so that's an important question to address. Last, why is anybody saved? Because of God. Why is anybody in hell? Because of you. You are responsible for your actions. And everybody is in that boat. We are all sinful creatures born unto sin. Why is anybody in heaven? Because God is gracious. And they all know that they shouldn't be there. Why is anybody in hell? Because God is just. And he gave them exactly what they wanted. What they were chasing on all along this entire time. It's because of their works. And we see the destination of the Israelite track of works will lead to what? Condemnation. Because they reject the gospel. They rejected the gospel of Christ. And the question is, what does that look like? What does it mean to reject the gospel? And in Paul-like fashion, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. They stumbled over this stone. They missed the point because God sent the embodiment of righteousness itself, the holy son of God, to earth, and they completely missed the point and instead focused on what? The law, the works. 
And so if you have these two racers, you can imagine that the stone at the end is the finish line. And the Israelite and the Gentile are racing on faith and works. And the Israelite trips over the stone and they keep running for a race that no longer exists. They trip over it. They keep running as if that's going to accomplish anything. Whereas by faith, they rest upon that stone. They miss the point. It's as if you have a, a blueprint an architect, he, he makes a great blueprint, very detailed, to build, say, a cathedral. And so the workers go to work, they build the cathedral, and it's the most magnificent cathedral you've ever seen in your life. And then at the end of it all, the architect goes, wow, look at this blueprint. All right, you missed the point entirely. The blueprint was to get us to the cathedral. It was pointing to the cathedral the entire time. And if you say, look at this blueprint... You're kind of insane, aren't you? That that wasn't the goal to begin with. They missed the point because they tripped over that stone that God, the rock of God that they tripped over. And Paul quotes, and he kind of combines two quotes between Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 8, 14. And a lot of times when we look at the Old Testament quotes within the New Testament, we don't go back and look at it because we want to keep reading the New Testament, New Covenant Church. I understand that. But there's a very important application that Paul is giving to the church this morning when he looks at Isaiah 8:14. It says, "And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem." Notice it says, "And he," in verse 14. Who is the he that is referred to as the stone? If you go back a verse, in verse 13, it says, but the Lord of hosts. It is he who will be this stone, either a sanctuary to some or a stone of offense for others. A cornerstone for some, as we saw in 1 Peter 2, or a rock of stumbling, missing the point entirely. It is the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the covenant name, he is this stone. So what is Paul doing here? What is he saying when he applies this Isaiah 8.14 passage to Jesus? He is saying he is God. He directs him, he quotes him directly as the Lord of hosts. And he says, that's the stone. That's the stone that you're going to build upon or trip over. That's the stone. That is God himself. The Lord of hosts is this rock. And so this is Paul's way of emphatically saying Jesus is God. And that makes sense because what happened? The Israelites missed the point. What greater point could there be than God himself? Can anybody name anything that would be more important to emphasize and look at and rest upon than God himself? No, Jesus is God and he is the point of this. He is, second this morning, the prize of righteousness. He is the prize of righteousness. And so Paul transitions here to further elaborate on the Israelites in verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So we see that all of this is rooted in Paul's heart for the Israelites. We, we see this as a constant theme with Paul that he says he would even give up his own salvation in order for the Israelites to be saved. He would be willing to do that. His heart is breaking for them. So don't let us be misguided that just because you're a national Israelite, you're saved. No, that's not the case at all. 
but he desires for them to be saved. And so that's a question for us this morning of, that's where Paul's heart is, but where is your heart? Where is my heart? Does our heart break for those that we know who are not saved? Do we pray for those who we know for sure are not saved? And if the answer is no, then I can tell you what you should be praying for. You should be praying for this kind of heart here in verse 1. If your heart doesn't break for those who are lost in your life, who are lost in your community, even in your church, that should break your heart and you should come before the Lord and ask for that kind of heart that you would long to see them saved. For Paul says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Remember when we looked at Romans 3, so what point is it to be an Israelite if that doesn't get you into heaven automatically? Paul says, no, there's a lot of good things about being an Israelite. doesn't mean you're saved, but there are good things to be had. You were entrusted the oracles of God. And he really just emphasizes that again in verse 2, saying, no, the Israelites have a zeal for God, but it's not an effective zeal because it's what? Not according to knowledge. So how do they have this non-effective zeal that is not according to knowledge? It's because they missed the point, the stone that they stumbled over. In Colossians uh, 2.3, it says, In whom Christ, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They don't have knowledge because they tripped over the stone and kept on running away from knowledge and wisdom itself. All the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden in Christ. And if they want their zeal to be effective, this zeal that is a good thing for God, if they want it to have any effect on anything in life, they need to turn back to the finish line that they left behind. That stone that they tripped over, because the race is over. Jesus said it is finished, and they need to go back to the stone and rest upon there. That's where the true knowledge is. That's where the true wisdom is. Because right now, the Israelites, unless they repent and believe the gospel of Christ, they are ignorant. And that's what Paul says in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So why did they not go back to the stone where the real knowledge, the real wisdom, the real point of it all? Why didn't they go back? Because they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And why were they ignorant of the righteousness of God? And Paul gives a two-sided coin. He likes that. The two-sided coins, a positive and a negative. On the positive side, they are ignorant of the righteousness of God because what? They're seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, because that's what's in view here. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness, and negatively, they're saying, not submitting to God's righteousness. Now, that's a problem because every Israelite boy and girl likes to puff up and say, we are God's people. We keep the law. We do good works. Well, there's a problem. If you submit your own righteousness instead of submitting to God's righteousness, who do you think is God in that situation by your actions? You think that you're God. You're saying, no, I don't care about this stone. I'm going to keep running past it. Instead, I'm going to focus on the law, the works. And so if you don't submit to God's righteousness and you put your righteousness as the main plan for everything, that tells everyone by your actions that you think you are God. No wonder Paul said earlier that 
They didn't even reach the law that they were striving for. They couldn't even keep the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that includes you. So no wonder they didn't keep it. No wonder they didn't obtain it in verse 31. Obtain the law that they were actually after. Because they believe that they are God. And they missed the point this entire time. And finally, in verse 4, we see that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this verse, I saved a little bit of time here at the end for this, because this verse has uh, elicited a lot of controversy and arguing. And you know how theologians are. They like to you know, plant their flags and say, I'm in this camp, you're in that camp, and they just go at it. And it's, uh, sometimes that can be good fun, but sometimes it's also not helpful at all. And so we have to ask the question, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Some have taken this verse to say, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Therefore, it's okay for me to sin. It's okay for me to not uphold the law of God as a believer. Christ did away with that. I no longer need to walk in righteousness to grow in righteousness at all because Christ put an end to that. Well, that's obviously not true. Before we look at something uh, of what something means, it's important to look at what it doesn't mean for sure. And we can look at Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus says himself, this is the Lord himself. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So why in the world would Christ say, I'm not here to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm here to fulfill them. Therefore, go on sinning. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. So why would Paul, who is his apostle, say something completely opposite to what Christ is saying in Matthew 5, 17? Well, the obvious answer is he's not saying anything different than what Paul is saying because he's the one that told Paul to say it. Or if you look at Romans 3, verse 8, it says, Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Paul has gone through great lengths to be sure he's not misunderstood. That just because you are saved, why not do good or do evil so that good may come? You don't cash in that way for the goodness of God. You don't presume upon the grace of God. And if you are, Paul says you're slandering the word of God and you're probably not saved. Their condemnation is just. If anybody says it's okay to sin because I am now a Christian and that is done away with, they're probably not saved and their condemnation is just. And so Paul gives us the two ditches, as Matt likes to point out. So on the one side, the Israelites were all about the law. That's the goal. That's a ditch that will send you to hell. But also, on the other ditch, we see some people who say it's okay to sin because Christ is the end of law for righteousness. So we don't want to be in either ditch. We want to be in the merciful middle. Or if you look at Romans 6, 1 through 2, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul answers it himself. Is it okay to sin because we're saved by grace and more grace shall abound? That would be a good thing. More grace is good, so go on sinning. He says, by no means. Meganoita, or as Matt says, mega no. Or as Bart Barber said, if you were here, what are you, stupid? He says, no, by no means. That is not 
possible for how can we who died to sin still live in it? And finally, Paul actually gives us the exact opposite command in Romans 3.31. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says, by no means. On the contrary is true. We uphold the law. So not only is it not true that it's okay to sin, Paul says the exact opposite, that you are set free to uphold the law at this point. So whatever this verse means in chapter 10, verse 4, it can't mean that sin is okay because Christ did away with the law for righteousness, that it's okay to now sin. But you didn't come all this way to hear what it doesn't mean. We also need to know what it does mean. And everything in verse 4 centers around the word end, telos. And like the English language, our word end can mean a few different things. So on the one hand, we say, this is the end of this conversation. Or, this is the end of this sermon. And then everybody says, hallelujah. What is that saying? The sermon is over. Something is done away with. I'm no longer preaching if this sermon is ended. So something is done away with. And that makes sense in our mind, doesn't it? Because... In some ways, this is very true, as we sung this morning. See the true and better Adam. Something new has happened with this true and better Adam that could not be accomplished with the first Adam or any son of the first Adam. He said on the cross, it is finished. Telos. It is over. The works that were needed to be complete under the covenant with the first Adam is now complete, and that is over at this point. And I've heard it put this way, and I think it's a good illustration, that you can, you can think of this law, this covenant of works, and the Israelites as scaffolding, and they're here to build a cathedral. And they're building the cathedral, but once the cathedral is built, you don't keep the scaffolding up. You get rid of the scaffolding, And then all who come want to come into the cathedral by faith through Christ are welcome. You don't keep up the scaffolding. It is finished. It's over. The the point, the rock of God has come. The primary purpose of everything has now come. And so that's one camp. They say, that's over. Something new. The covenant of grace, the new covenant of my blood has started. And that makes a lot of sense. But just like our English word end has multiple meanings, we can also say to that end, X, Y, Z. So how do we use the word end there? We're saying to that purpose, for that goal, to that end, this is the point, the end that we were getting to this entire time. And they say, no, Christ is the purpose. Remember the image he gave us that they ran over the rock, they tripped over it, and they kept on running. And they missed it. Back there is the purpose. That's the point of everything that has happened. That's the goal, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ was the purpose. He's the true and better Adam. He was the point all along. He wasn't a side note. And, of course, this is true. That, that's a, there's a lot of weight to this. And so we ask, which one of these is true? And I love it when I can come in the pulpit and say, they're both true. We don't have to pin camps against each other. We don't have to plant a flag. It is true that the works needed for the first covenant with God's people is finished in Christ. He did it. There's nothing left to be done. And also, 
He was not only completed this, he was the point of this. He was the prize of righteousness itself. Both of these are true. They're not mutually exclusive. And so that really only leads us to one question of what do we do with this rock who is God himself and was sent by God? He is this rock. And so we have two tracks, a Gentile racer on the track of faith and an Israelite racer on the track of works. And eventually these tracks will converge. And at this convergence, there is a rock right in the middle. And how you react to this rock that has been placed in your way will either be a sanctuary, as 8.14 says, or it will be a stone of offense. Or as we saw in 1 Peter 2, it's going to be a cornerstone or it's going to be a stumbling stone. And if you stumble over this stone and say, that's not the point, it's all about the land and the feast and the stuff that you can do, if that's not the point, that track of works will lead you to hell. That's the answer to the question of why is anybody lost? Because you placed your faith on the works track instead of on Christ. But if you rest upon this rock, if this rock is your cornerstone, if he is the rock of ages to you, your sanctuary, he will accept you and bring you in to build up his church. And this will be a sanctuary for you. And eventually he will come back and take this sanctuary to be home with him. The faith track will lead you to heaven. The works track will lead you straight to hell. As we saw in Romans 3, you can try. If you can keep the law, you will go to heaven. I promise. If you can do it perfectly. If you can do it, no worries. What's the problem? You cannot do it. But Christ has done it. It is finished. There's nothing more to do. So my question is, where is your faith found its resting place? Is it upon your own works, your own stuff, your own feast, your own religion? Or is it upon the finished work and goal of Christ himself? What safer, what more secure place could you put your faith this morning than on Christ? If you're worried about the, the election talk that we had last week, you don't have to worry about it. Non-election is not keeping you from Christ. But your sin will. Your works will. And so we invite you, as always, to come to Christ as we see what he has done and completed this morning as we come to the Lord's table. So I ask that you rest upon this rock as your cornerstone, this rock of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the finished work that you have provided for all who believe in Christ. We know that there is nothing more to do. We know that there is no better place for our faith to find a resting place than the rock of ages. This great cornerstone or this great stumbling stone. And God, if anybody is stumbling over this rock this morning, I pray that you grant them repentance that they would turn from their sin and that they would believe the gospel of Christ to realize that he was the point of it all from the very beginning. This is not plan B. He was always plan A. And I pray that you make his goal, him the goal, first and foremost in our lives in all way. That you give us strength and courage to rest here 
knowing that you have completed all that must be done and there is nothing left for us to do. We beg this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.